We're toying with this idea of like, maybe we need a vehicle with a third row seat. So I made the mistake of clicking on and providing some of my information to a car dealer. And so now they text me daily. Now, I will say it's at least humorous, the text messages. So I just got one for today. And it is a gif of Chuck Norris giving the thumbs up. And the message is, Chuck Norris called and he wants to know if you're coming. Yes or yes. And if you say no, he'll, he'll come to your house and give you a roundhouse kick. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and digital patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physicians' practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into a variety of topics on the digital tools, solutions, strategies, and processes that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome back to Touchpoint. Welcome back, or welcome to episode 188. I always say welcome back. Hopefully it is welcome back, but you're not coming back to episode 188. I mean, maybe you are. Maybe you've listened. this is the second time you've listened to it, uh, <laughs> which is also great, I guess. But we certainly do appreciate you listening to it the first time. And uh, we welcome you to the show. I am Reed Smith. That is Chris Boyer. Hey, Reed. Yeah, we welcome you to not only listen to it the first time, but go back and re-listen to it. Maybe the second time you listen to it, listen to it at one and a half speed. I'd be curious if people do that. I know people do that. I'm curious if people that listen to our show, if anybody does that and finds that advantageous. In any case, we are the two folks that make up the show Touchpoint, and uh, we're glad that you're here. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about this show, you can do so over at touchpoint.health. That's the website. That's where you can find out not only a little bit more about this episode that you're listening to or this show that you're listening to, but the other shows and episodes and show hosts that are on the network. One to point out, our newest show, uh, Healthcare Insight for Marketers from our friends over at True North. Got a couple of episodes queued up there and excited about what they're doing. Uh, they've got a trailer out and episode one, uh, some great information there. And the exam room, data point, intersection, it, the list goes on and on. So we certainly appreciate all of our shows, show hosts, and all the listeners. So if you'd like to learn more, again, touchpoint.health is the website. Rate, review, subscribe, wherever you happen to be listening, whether that's Apple Podcast streaming on Spotify, if you can rate us, please do so. That is super, super helpful for us. And uh, we've got a cool episode for today. We'll take a quick break and be right back. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is, and Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews, and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand, they demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation 
that performs for you. So Reed, today we're going to be talking about innovation. Well, that's actually maybe misstated because we usually talk about innovation in almost every episode, don't we? Yeah, pretty close. I mean, that's not a new topic to this podcast, right? <laughs> I think innovation is top of mind to a lot of people because of the challenges that we're facing this year. And if anything, this pandemic has brought out some of the problems with our healthcare industry in general. And it's given us the opportunity to really think about ways to innovate, ways to make things better overall, don't you think? It has, yeah. I mean, it's, it's certainly brought to light opportunities. And this is the time, certainly. It's ripe for innovation, as people like to say. Uh, this should be kind of a neat episode as we think about, like you said, we always talk about innovation, at least to some degree, but but really kind of honing in on what is innovation, the essentials and success and you know things like that. We've been covering a lot of stories around innovation as it relates to the pandemic itself. As we were preparing for this, we were thinking about some ways that we're seeing innovation play out right now in terms of combating this disease. And it started first with the clinical management of COVID-19. We covered a number of stories and articles about organizations, health systems, doing things differently in order to help clinically manage COVID-19. What are some other innovations around the pandemic that you've seen, Reed? We've talked again a lot about this, but even the telehealth and the, the delivery of care uh, to some degree, you talked, you mentioned clinical management, finding unique ways to uh, you know, meet patients where they are and you know, address and be able to deliver care, I think is interesting. Uh, some of that's even chatbot related. Wasn't necessarily invented during COVID, but you know, the utilization of it certainly was heightened. Well, that's an interesting position that you said. Innovation sometimes is mischaracterized as something that is new. And oftentimes, innovation can be evolving what we currently do to make it better. And one of the ways that I see it is uh, we've been talking a lot about vaccines for coronavirus. There's been a lot of innovation around getting the vaccine sped to market a lot quicker. That's kind of an interesting development that we're seeing. There's also recently an article that we found that Forbes published. Yeah, five tech innovations that could change healthcare this decade. Well, we're off to a great start on this decade. <laughs> These are five innovations that that hopefully will, um, you know, at least trend us in the right direction. The first one they talk about is uh, artificial intelligence, specifically around cancer diagnoses. So we've seen a little bit about Google or being able to diagnose certain breast cancer, certain types of cancer more efficiently or quicker than uh, actual radiologists. Another one is this whole retail healthcare, and we covered that a couple episodes ago. But we're seeing these huge BMS like Amazon, Walmart, Walgreens, etc., coming into this space and rethinking in a very innovative way how healthcare can be delivered and can be accessed by people. And so, if you're interested a little bit more in our thoughts around that, just jump back a couple of episodes on our retail healthcare one. Third one they mention uh, here: uh, mind-controlled wearables. Oh, boy. <laughs> but no, the, the mind-controlled wearables, especially as it relates to individuals with disabilities, you know, and, and being able to uh, provide them some confidence, autonomy, um, some hope, if you will, that's an interesting, kind of hurts my head, no pun intended, a little bit, just thinking about the ability to control things with your mind. 
the fourth one they they highlight in this article, which we're going to link to in the show notes. So definitely go do a deep dive and learn more about these. Artificial 3D hearts saving lives. We haven't talked a lot about 3D printers on this show, Reed, but 3D printers are being used significantly, particularly around the transplant world. The American Transplant Foundation is saying that there are a number of people on the waiting list and why not use a 3D printer to create uh, artificial hearts? And that's going to be an interesting uh, evolvement. We're seeing that happen across the world right now. That's interesting. I, you know, the 3D printing where you've seen like uh, for like burn victims, for example, that seems to make sense. When you start talking about organs and 3D printing stuff like that, that is, that's a whole nother level in my mind. The last one they mentioned here is virtual reality gaming the healthcare system. So this is a lot of people in headsets playing video games or something. <laughs> not not really, but but this idea of the computer technology creating realistic environments. And so we've seen this in some other really interesting use cases like in the service industry, right? Where you know they're able to limit cost and, and restrict costs like uh, like Home Depot for example that rents a bunch of equipment out. They don't have to have repair people at each location, and they don't have to also ship equipment around to be repaired. They can use VR and help the person locally service or fix or whatever you know the equipment. As I think about it for healthcare, it's probably more in the education space. As we think about like peer-to-peer, clinician-to-clinician, that kind of thing. So medical education, if you will. And then they talk in here a little bit about you know the treatment of anxiety, PTSD. So anyway, it's an interesting idea. Clearly, there are a lot of opportunities for innovation that can occur in our industry, and we are always excited to talk about and cover some of the great innovation ideas that are are out there. But we thought it would be important to talk a little bit about how do you actually get innovation to happen within your organization? And that's not an easy answer, right, Reed? I mean, it's being innovative. It's it's a hard thing to do. It's hard because especially if things are going well or are fine. It just seems like a lot of cost. Exactly. For not really a known outcome. And that really highlights the importance of understanding innovation and what are those elements of innovation that would be within your organization. So we found this great article. It's actually one that was published a number of years ago by McKinsey but it's what I call an oldie but a goodie, which is entitled The Eight Essentials of Innovation. Innovation is complex. It's When done right, it, it really impacts a company across a whole organization. And it doesn't happen fortuitously by chance. There is a structure to this. Of the eight, it's really two groups of four. Uh, they talk about here that the first four are more strategic and creative in nature. So they help set and prioritize the terms and conditions, they say, under which innovation is more likely to thrive. Whereas the final four that we're t- we'll talk about deal more with you know how to deliver and organize the innovation even repeatedly over time with value and having that meaningful and overall performance being something that's... Yeah. And before we dive into those eight, they have a line here that we want to highlight here. They say, while they're sharing these eight elements, there is no proven formula for success, particularly when it comes to innovation. So it's a big caveat. So just because you have these eight doesn't mean you're going to be innovative and be able to transform things, but it's good to know these four elements. So number one, 
And again, the first four, remember, are more on the uh, strategic and creative side of the equation. But number one is uh, aspire. A far-reaching vision can be compelling, obviously, and it can be kind of that catalyst, provided it's realistic enough. You know, I mean, I can come up with a lot of great ideas. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think the realistic is an important piece here. Uh, but they talk about it combining high-level aspirations with estimates of the value that the innovation should generate, specifically around financial growth objectives. So I think that's really important. So it's aspirational, certainly, but it's grounded in uh, what they talk about financial growth objectives. Quantifying an innovation target for growth. That's an interesting quote here. Uh, and making it part of those uh, future strategic plans really helps certainly provide some level of accountability for the innovation. You also need to make it relevant for all the business owners and cascade it down to performance targets and timelines for anybody that's involved in that initiative. Not only create that high-level vision and the high-level target, but also figure out a way to contextualize it throughout the organization. The second element here is choose. They say many companies run into difficulty Less than a scarcity of new ideas, like you just said, right? You have a lot of great ideas, but more from the struggle to determine which ideas they should be supporting and scaling. And it's more about managing risk than eliminating it. Executives should, in this case, create some boundary conditions for the opportunities they want to explore. You got to put some guardrails around it, but look at these, all these various different opportunities and prioritize them based on whether you have enough investment behind what they are, what the business impact will be. And ultimately you you need to finance these initiatives. You need to, you know, you need to invest in making innovation happen. It just doesn't happen on the fly over lunch hour, right? <laughs> That's right. Well, and and I'm gonna get this completely wrong. I think it's Google that gives its engineers a certain percentage of their time to work on whatever they want, you know, personal projects. And I think it may even be 20% of their time or something. And that's, that's interesting because they're prioritizing innovation. They're fueling and giving people a runway uh, to do that. And it talks in here about the, you know, allocation of uh, resources and, and things like that. And I think that's an important consideration because again, it's not just going to like accidentally happen one day. The third element is discover. So uh, innovation insights come by methodically and systematically scrutinizing these three areas, they say. Uh, the first one being a valuable problem to solve. Secondly, a technology that enables a solution. And finally, a business model that generates money from it. You know, I think we're probably pretty good at least at identifying the problem or a problem that would be nice to solve. We're probably okay with creating or thinking through ideas around you know, how we might solve it or the technology in this case. The business model that, that allows you to generate money from it, I think, is, is one maybe that is not thought of early enough. It's also important, too, to think about this as an iterative approach. And they say here, you know, as you're going through this iteration using agile or other types of methodologies, uh, this will allow you to discover more insights as you're testing and validating along the way. Let's do this, Reed. Let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, why don't we cover the remaining five of these elements of uh, innovation? 
Okay, so before the break, we're going through a McKenzie article where we're talking about the different elements of innovation, and there's eight of them, and we are now at number four, which is still in the strategic part of the list here, and that is Evolve. And just before the break, we talked about iteration, where it allows us to discover new ideas, validate, etc. Evolution is part of this process as, as well. At the top of the show, we talked about is innovation creating new stuff or is it evolving existing things? They say here that the reason most big companies are more focused on creating new products is because there's a sort of an inherent reluctance to tamper with things that are working as their core business models. Yeah, because if you if you screwed that up, then what? You're messing with your core business, right? Right. But they list here a number of ways that businesses can combat that sort of inherent internal resistance to innovation. The first is obviously using market intelligence. That allows you to really understand where maybe there are indicators statistically or are, are quantifiable in your market that lead towards where a need to evolve may be. Another one is um, establishing funding vehicles for the new business models. Like you just said, right? Like how Google has a certain amount of their time dedicated to innovation. That's a technique that will allow you to kind of break free from tampering with your core business model, so to speak, because you're kind of encouraging it. Some interesting things that that they've also got listed here. And we talk a lot about this in healthcare, but are we like these, I guess, are pilot projects? Yeah. Everybody loves a good pilot, but, but it, it does really serve a purpose and allows you to kind of test the validity of it. You want to look at where there might be new opportunities to do things differently, but you also have to ensure that it's going to have some kind of return to your organization and it's aligned with where your customers are. I think that's the important thing here. We're not innovating just to innovate. We're innovating to do things better. And so getting that feedback from your customer through this is an important piece of that. What's the fifth uh, element, Reed? Well, now we're moving into, I guess, the operational portion of this, the last four, right? Five through eight. And so these deal with, you know, how to deliver and and organize. And so the fifth one is uh, accelerate. So they talk about a surprising number of impressive inventions from companies were actually the fruits of Mavericks who succeeded by bypassing the early approval process. Do we want to, it's like we're encouraging this. I'm not sure. Anyway, but they talk about that there needs to be a balance, that the bureaucracy and existing systems, you know, are there for a reason and really hold things in check. Yet the rush to market should not undermine the cross-functional collaboration, the continuous learning cycles, the clear decision paths, uh, all of which help enable innovation. I'm thinking very specifically now about the fast track that we're doing around vaccines for coronavirus. Mm-hmm. And typically they have three different phases of testing in, you know, from a laboratory perspective, then they test it on humans, and then they go out and they do a, a kind of a massive, the phase three tests. And what we're doing in our rush to get a vaccine created is we're kind of collapsing those together. I think that collapsing in this case does make sense, but you also have to retain the whole spirit of why there's a three-phased approach. Companies that test their innovations with customers early in the process, before internal forces kind of change and shift things, are going to be more successful. It's important to knock down the barriers that stand between a great idea and the end user. 
and they also talk about you know the the need for a well connected manager to be able to take charge and run a project and be responsible for the budget, the time to market, the specs. A person who can say yes rather than no. You know, we run into that a lot too. Certainly in hospitals with with folks that I mean, their job is really to say no. And so as innovation comes about, it's important to be able to have somebody in charge that that can push this through. And a project team that's cross-functional, oftentimes they're put into like a single place. They call it like, you know, these innovation hubs or whatever they might be, right? They kind of all group together and giving them the time. This article actually recommends that if you're in part of an innovation project team, you should dedicate at least half of your time to that innovation initiative. Well, and two, you know, being the marketing guy, they've got an interesting call out in here. And so a lot of the folks listening certainly are in those marketing communication roles, but they say that marketing's role is to champion the interest of the end user throughout this innovation process and help ensure that the final result is what everyone envisioned, certainly, but also through kind of the lens or voice of the customer. Of course, they also say that a lot of companies take the Steve Jobs approach, right? Which is... They rationalize that customers don't really know what they want. So <laughs> until they can make it, there are people that do both. I guess you kind of have to, to kind of weigh that accordingly. So the sixth element is scale. Some innovations are designed for niche audiences, while others have a global impact on your organization. So you have to understand where they fit in the overall scale. Considering the appropriate magnitude and reach of a given idea is important to ensure that the right resources and risks are involved in pursuing it. So if you're doing something that's going to transform the way, let's say, your patients access their cancer services, and that's a big part of your your organization, then you want to put a lot of resources and time into that, as opposed to someone that might be innovating, you know, a widget on the website to allow people to pay their bill through an online form. You want to be able to, to scale things appropriately, depending on what the size they are. And they call out here that a safer option of scaling up over time, which I've heard a lot, that could be a death sentence for innovation. Yeah, it really could be. Number seven they talk about is extend. So innovation requires external collaboration. So talent and knowledge increasingly transcends company and geographic boundaries. So smart collaboration with external partners allows you to go outside and break through some of those walls by being able to source new ideas, insights, etc. And could potentially maybe save you some dollars. Maybe it's faster to market, etc. And, and then high-performing innovators, they say, strive to become partners of choice, increasing the likelihood that the best ideas and people will, will always come their way. Well, I think every organization wants to be a high-performing innovator, and they want to be the partner of choice. They want to be the best work with the best partners, that sort of thing. But they mm-hmm. actually outline a system. First, they say is find out what partners you're already working with. And surprisingly, a lot of organizations may not know the full breadth of all their partners that they're working with because everything's so siloed and fragmented. So do that first. And then decide which ones, which networks and narrow it down, they say four or five of them, that will support the innovation effort to help you narrow and focus your collaboration efforts to manage that flow of possibilities from the outside of the company, and then regular review to make sure there are performing. They call it pruning them. I know, and that's kind of an, a very harsh term to talk about when you look at your, your partners, right? <laughs> but prune them accordingly. Pruning. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> So the last one's probably most important. 
mobilize. They say the best companies find ways to embed innovation into the fibers of their culture from the core to the periphery. And when you're setting financial targets for innovation, this allows you to become much more focused on what that innovation idea. And they say that as aspirations come to life through these individual projects across the company, innovation leaders start to become better at what they do. So you're actually grooming a culture of innovation. It's almost in part what they're saying is to start with a a myriad of innovation ideas, and then your innovators, internal innovators within your organization will be groomed to come up to the top. It's part of culture too, a little bit, right? Yeah. You have to allow and have a space for it. You know, it talks in here, like you said, about, you know, innovation being embedded into the culture. I mean, that's the thing in and of itself, How does that work? There's got to be a lane for it. And it's got to be like we talked about earlier, parts of people's jobs and they have time to do it, really invest in those places. They actually outline here ways that companies can help people to start to share ideas and knowledge. Obviously, locating teams working on different types of innovation in the same place. Avoid that sort of the matrix people that you see like once every week. Try to get them working together. Reviewing the structure of your project teams to make sure they always have new blood, new energy, and pruned accordingly, right? Using that term again. Pruned. <laughs> Ensuring the lessons learned from success and failure are captured and assimilated. So learn from what you're doing and capture your successes and failures. And then recognize innovation efforts even when they fall short of success. So actually kind of do a debrief after every innovation to learn. Some of them are going to work and some of them won't. Most of them probably won't, I would assume. They talk about the, the internal collaboration experimentation can take years to establish. I think it's careful that we're not thinking about this as like this quick turn. Let's let's do some innovation, you know, yeah. kind, kind of thing, right? Like, let's let's start that here. It takes a lot to put that in place. Yeah, you know, they talk about some companies setting up "quote unquote" innovation garages where, where folks can work on different projects and are unconstrained by the normal work environment and those types of things. And that's all. You know, it's got to work with your culture, your company, the setup, geographic location, and other parameters. But but considering and looking at ways that you can make this a forefront, both visually, like you know, having an actual place where people can do things, and then culturally, where it's you know, reward, recognize, even when it when it falls short. Innovation is critically important, and we outline some very high-level elements here that could be useful, but you know, the devil's in the details, and it's actually in the work that you do. Having been part of a number of innovation projects before, it really puts your organization to the test if you're doing it. And and as you said, Reed, right, many of these fail, but you got to learn from your failures. I think that's a good thing. Which kind of leads naturally to the interview that we're going to run right after this break here. I recently had the ability to sit down with a lady named Shelly Pavone, who's been involved in innovation in healthcare for a number of years. And her company, Enlightened, with an I, Enlightened, they operate a lot like a sort of a matchmaking for healthcare organizations that are looking for outside innovators to come in and maybe generate new ideas or even be associated with the project. And we sat down together and talked a little bit about her thoughts around how to build the right innovation team. And it's a really insightful interview. So after the break, let's give that a listen, and then we'll be back to wrap up the show.
Welcome back to the Ask the Experts section of the podcast. And today, I'm delighted to be talking to someone that I just recently got to know through a mutual friend. But when I learned a little bit more about her perspective on the industry and some of the ways that she's tackling some of the big changes that are happening in our industry, I could not wait to get her onto the show. And that is Shelly Pavone. Shelly, welcome to the show today. Thank you so much, Chris. I'm so happy to be here. Well, I'm excited you're here too. Now, many people listening in may not know about you and your background. Would you mind uh, providing them a little bit of a perspective on or who you are and how you got here? Yeah, of course. I've uh, been in the healthcare industry for about 18 years now. I started right after college in healthcare. I started working for large pharmaceutical and device companies. And along the years, I have spent time working for digital health companies, health tech startups. I've touched pretty much everything within the hospital from textiles to working in supply chain analytics all the way through to being in the OR and you know doing electrical engineering post-operatively, et cetera. I've seen a lot of different angles of this industry and really have focused in the, the innovation health tech startup space for the past seven years of my career. And I've, I've always been on the commercial side of the business, but I'm also somebody who really loves to dig in on the clinical side as well. It's just an interest of mine. You know, in another life, maybe I would have been a physician. It's interesting because innovation is something, it's a term that many of us use. And and I've been involved in a number of different innovation projects, both within health systems, but also working with healthcare companies and startups and others. And I found that while it is a, a noble cause or a noble pursuit, there are a lot of challenges when you're going down the path of innovation. And today, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about this because of your company, Enlightened is designed to help with that. Tell us a little bit about Enlightened before we uh, actually jump into the uh, the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Enlightened is really designed to bridge the knowledge gap between, I would say, innovator and healthcare provider. I've seen so many challenges along the way for healthcare innovations to succeed. They fail at a pretty alarming rate. Many numbers show as high as ninety six percent and. You know, spend a lot of time kind of speaking to both sides of the aisle. You know, I've worked on the industry side and I've also, you know, worked with clinicians. I've sold to clinicians. I've brought them onto companies as advisors. And there's so much frustration, I think, on both sides of the aisle. And so we built Enlightened as a way to really help clinicians and those that are innovating in healthcare engage and kind of advance, you know, healthcare innovation for the greater good. We have a, a network of clinicians that is vetted by us. Um, it's invitation only, but we also focus um, very heavily on diversity. We want diversity of thought and opinion. Uh, we pair them with innovators in healthcare, companies of, of all stages and sizes for consulting opportunities and projects. And we hope by you know, bringing both sides of the aisle together for collaboration, we can not only advance healthcare innovation more quickly but we can also assist people in disrupting responsibly, which is huge within healthcare. Yeah, I think that's critical. When you talk about disrupting responsibly, there are th- landmines when you go down the path of innovation. Mm-hmm. And today, I want to talk to you about some of the things that you've seen in your experience, because you've been down this path before, and you've actually created this company to kind of help address that. I think one of the biggest challenges that I've seen in the innovation projects that I've been involved with is we don't seem to have the right people around the table when we even embark down the path of innovation. Have you seen that too? 
Yeah, I've seen that a lot. I think that's, you know, one of the largest challenges within healthcare because in typical innovations, right, you know, a couple of people who understand the market you're embarking on and you can really utilize them through all paths on the innovation life cycle. But in healthcare, it's really difficult to get the right people around the table. And obviously those that are delivering care are busy. And also within healthcare, everyone is so highly specialized, right? If you speak with someone at uh, an academic medical center, you're not going to be able to take that information and superimpose it to a community medical center. The same thing goes with those in the same specialty, you know, cardiologists. You talk to five cardiologists, it's very likely they're all going to have a different type of specialization, Right. I think within healthcare, not only do you need to really work hard to get the right people around the table, but you also need to get a diverse swath of people around the table. And then the people that you have around the table for, say, the beginning of your journey, when you're vetting an idea, you know, you're clinically validating what you're doing, and the people that you have around the table when you're ready to go to market are probably a completely different group it becomes much more difficult in healthcare because you're continuously trying to source this type of expertise and an uphill battle in the first place. Obviously, expertise in healthcare is hard to come by. You know, it's expensive and clinicians are very busy. So doing that again and again and again, I think presents a real challenge for the innovators. Let's address some of those things that you brought up uh, point by point, because I think they're very important. One of the first things I clued in on that you were saying is right about focusing on the right type of people in terms of their specialty and expertise. And I myself have been in innovation projects where the critical subject matter experts are those people that were leaning in for that expertise around innovation. They just don't have the time and the, the availability to do that. And oftentimes, they're not even prioritized to be focusing on innovation. Do you think that's systemic of our industry? Or is, is that just a general challenge with innovation in general? I think it's a little bit of a challenge with innovation in general, but specifically in healthcare. You know, I think that a lot of Providers are really frustrated, you know, because I think what what's happened is in healthcare, we talk about healthcare innovation and disruption and, and everybody gets really excited. And I think that that's true of the clinicians as well. And a lot of them have wanted to roll up their sleeves and help these innovators. But what happens is when it comes time to drive adoption, right, we see a lot of blockers within healthcare. You know, you might have a, a clinician who's super excited, you know, they're an early adopter, they're ready to use this new technology, but you have to go through the hospital C-suite sometimes to get this purchased or give them the opportunity to use it. You know, we see this with pilots all the time. I mean, you might have some really interesting, you know, whether it's software or a medical device that a clinician is looking to pilot within their facility and they have to go through 10 levels of approval to even get the opportunity to use something for free. Yeah, I think the industry presents a lot of challenges because of the bureaucratic nature and because of the fact that there are just so many stakeholders involved that it's really almost nearly impossible to drive innovation within healthcare, which I think is sad. And that's why I think it's really important when you're gathering people around that table that you're looking at people that are not only you know stakeholders from a clinical perspective, but those from an administrative perspective too, because like it or not, you've got to get them all on board. 
And I think that speaks to the second thing I want to drill into is the, the right number of people involved, because I think that's also a delicate balance. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to predict at times, you know, how many people can be involved in an innovation project. But I do, I have seen in my experience that uh, oftentimes those project teams grow substantially, exponentially at times. And so how do you balance that? Are there any kind of guidelines or characteristics around how to determine the right volume of, of, of expertise around the table? Well, I, again, you know, I think that it's that fine line between getting enough perspective and having too many cooks in the kitchen. In my experience, selling into hospitals, they make decision by committee. So you'll have people at it every week. You know, you're, you're trying to balance that messaging to, you know, the administrative stakeholders and the clinical stakeholders. And when you are truly trying to come up with an innovation that is going to break through within healthcare, I would say err on the side of more voices. Ultimately, I think the problem is now is that we stop after we have one or two that validate what we're doing. As an entrepreneur myself, that's like a great feeling, right? When when we get some validation for what we're doing and it's like, well, these two people are experts and they like it and I'm going to forge ahead. Again, within healthcare, because it's so variable, you really have to make sure that you're sourcing expertise from all of the different areas within healthcare. So whether or not you are looking at different specialties, you need to look at providers that are in different geographic locations, those that are in different practice types, you know, as I had mentioned before, community hospitals, uh, critical access hospitals, academic medical centers, and then also certainly those that are treating diverse patient populations. I think as an entrepreneur, if you really look at each of those individual silos and you try to source a couple of opinions from each at least you're in a you're in a good starting point from there. I would. Yeah, let's focus in a little bit on the diversity piece because I think that's critically important. And oftentimes, we as an industry, we've built systems that we think work for the general population, and it's not just you know health systems, but also you know, health companies or health IT companies with not so much of an eye on diversity. And so, un- unfortunately, we may have built some biased approaches, right? Or innovations. When you talk about diversity, what are ways that you see that organizations or people that are going down this path can start to have an eye on making sure there is a diverse group in the room, so to speak? Yeah, there's no doubt that we've built plenty of biased solutions in this in this industry. I hear stories every day of uh, another, you know, something going to market or a clinical trial that isn't sourcing the right people. And I think that, first of all, We've gone down this path of having like this club of people who are used as the experts in healthcare. And if you're looking at your club and you have been sourcing expertise and opinions from the same five people for the last 20 years, it's time to disrupt that. We're talking more about diversity. We're talking more about inequity in healthcare. That's great. But action needs to be taken at this point. From the perspective of of diverse opinions in healthcare and specifically how it relates to innovation, studies show that diversity unlocks innovation. It drives growth. It stimulates novel thinking. It improves outcomes. And that's what we're trying to do with innovation. And we need to source diverse opinions from within healthcare because guess what? Diverse opinions and diverse clinicians are treating diverse patient populations, right? They understand the challenges of those patient populations. From that perspective, diversity truly underlies the difference in the way that they hear patient stories. 
approach their problems and really speak and interpret that information. We have to look outside of the box. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to stop saying that we're going to talk to the same five people in the club Mm -hmm. that we've been talking to all these years. You know, we can't just source expertise Mm -hmm. through our networks anymore, because if your network is homogenous, then the expertise that you get is going to be as well. If entrepreneurs and innovators in healthcare truly want to succeed and they want to be able to, to innovate and, you know, treat diverse patient populations and they need to get out there and start finding clinicians who are treating them and they need to find clinicians that are diverse themselves. It's very humanistic of us to have confirmation bias, but I know that in, in you know, the over a decade I've been working in this space that we are very unique, us experts within the healthcare, in that we do come in with a lot of confirmation bias. We are actually incented to be very knowledgeable. And I, you know, I'm not trying to point any fingers at clinicians per se, but I often found that clinicians themselves have probably the strongest bias ever. Mm-hmm. How do you find when you're in you know, these settings where we're, st- we're trying to build a, an environment of diversity and openness, and, and, you know, that, which is the right environments to have around innovation, how do you address this? You're right. You know, confirmation bias is is rampant in the healthcare industry. And, you know, I, I think it's easy to fall into that trap for anybody. Right. We all want we all want to have like affirmation of our decisions and whatnot. But I think being aware of the confirmation bias is certainly the first step. It's just knowing that that's the case. And really, I mean, I think just putting the onus on yourself to, to go beyond that. Right. Don't speak again. Once you've spoken to two or three people, purposely try to source somebody outside of your network. It's kind of crazy because in the healthcare space, you know, we think LinkedIn is the professional network. Like I have found Twitter to be a really great place to find diverse perspectives in medicine. Um, You know, you have so many clinicians on there that are vocal and and you have to find the clinicians that are vocal about inequities in medicine. You have to start following those groups and people and really opening up your mind to, you know, different ideas, you know, getting out there and reading the articles. Connecting what we're doing in innovation to real patient stories is so paramount in avoiding, you know, all of those biases. You know, reading someone else's story about a poor experience that they've had with healthcare, looking into other types of clinicians who are on the front lines of making sure that we're addressing the inequities in healthcare and truly understanding what happens when we fall prey to things like confirmation bias and how that impacts such a large group of people, I think is the first step in helping us kind of avoid that. In my experience, I come more from a software perspective. So in, in I, I've contextualized sort of this, this as design thinking and even like user experience design thinking. You know, one of the things that becomes very important in that is to ensure that we have a very clear understanding of who we're designing it for. And there have been experiences where we actually have clearly defined what that user looks like and always kind of pointing back to some of their key characteristics and and use that as sort of like a a focal point for a remember, this is who we're designing for. I think that's great, right? We use that in the commercial side of business as well with our user personas, you know, who, who are these people, you know, you have John in marketing and his, you know, little icon is there and you're thinking about John when you're building your pitch and everything like that. But I think design thinking is is great to assist us in avoiding confirmation bias because it forces us to 
really kind of keep that person in mind the whole time. But it's the same trap that you can fall in in other areas, right? If your audience that you're designing for is homogenous, then you have a problem. Unfortunately, within healthcare, I've, ha- I've heard too many stories of times when there's a treatment or a drug where the, the actual concern lies with different diverse populations, and they're still filling the trial with a fairly homogenous mix of people. We have to make sure that when we're designing solutions, and we are, you know, getting those personas out there in mind that, you know, okay, let's look around at our personas. We certainly have to have a focus to our efforts. Mm-hmm. Something else you brought up at the very beginning of our conversation that I think is also critically important. You said something to the effect of the experts that you want to have around the table through an innovation process may change over the duration of that innovation process, so to speak. Talk a little bit about that, because I think that's that's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, you know, in healthcare, it's highly specialized and it's also extremely variable. And there is an innovation life cycle and there are different phases that we go through as innovators. And, you know, in the very early days, we're trying to validate an idea, whether that's validating it with the market or we're validating it clinically. And there are obviously certain people that are really great to help you with that specifically. You know, if we're clinically validating an idea, you're going to have somebody that has a more scientific mind, someone that is very focused on the science piece of it. Or, you know, if you're looking at a digital health solution, um, you're going to work with people that understand the workflow within, you know, their practice or within the hospital who can help you with the UX of what you're doing, et cetera. But when it's time to go to market, those might be not the right people that you want to talk to, right? I think that, again, just as, you know, clinicians specialize, you know, within uh, cardiology or, you know, um, whether they are, you know, internists, they also specialize in different arenas within the hospital. If you're trying to drive adoption, you need someone who understands the, the network of the hospital, who makes decisions. You need somebody from an academic medical center and a community medical center if you're planning to sell into those two different types of organizations. There are just different levels of expertise and the same person who is going to help you in the early stages with your idea might not be the person who's the most appropriate to help you grow your solution. And we build long-term relationships with experts, which, which is fantastic, and I think we should. But I also think that we need to continuously source expertise for every stage of the innovation lifecycle because, you know, your company is changing drastically from a sales perspective, right? That person who helped you get the first couple of sales might not be the same person who helps you scale. And it's the same thing with engaging, you know, clinical expertise as well. Particularly as our industry is undergoing such radical changes now, I mean the pandemic has done so much. It's forced our the healthcare industry in general to really look at innovative new ways. And you know many of the things that we do today are not going to be the things that we're going to be doing in the future. And so there's a lot of this transformation occurring. But that kind of brings up this age old question, Shelley, that I always have. And I'm going to ask you, and, and I'm not necessarily looking for you as the the final definitive answer answer, but I'd love your perspective on this. 
oftentimes it's been questioned around where does innovation best come from? Does it come from within like an integrated health system, you know, or does it come from without where you might have some people with different unique perspectives that maybe have not spent a lot of time in healthcare? Because we are now in a world where we're dealing with outside entrance into healthcare and, and innovations happening everywhere. What are your thoughts around that? Yeah, you know, I, I'm a big fan of the fact that we need people who have, you know, out of the box thinking to come into healthcare and help. What I think is that it's both. We can't do one or the other. I don't, innovation doesn't happen within a vacuum. And I think those that are in the health system are already extremely biased. You know, they're used to kind of that inside the box thinking, you know, how do I get this idea to fit within the confines of this bureaucratic industry that I'm already involved in? And you have the people that come from the outside that may have really interesting out-of-the-box thinking, but unfortunately, they have that motto and innovation, you know, that we repeat so often, move fast and break things. That doesn't necessarily work in healthcare either. So I, I truly believe that for innovation to happen in healthcare, it's collaboration between the two sides. Those outside-of-the-box thinkers cannot disrupt in healthcare if they don't know how to drive adoption or get the people that are used to the current structure and system on board. And the people that are used to the current structure and systems just aren't innovative enough to do what we need without the people that are outside to say, this sounds crazy, right? But we're going to do it. So I I truly think that it has to happen from both sides and there has to be collaboration. Yeah, I guess that leaves the challenge of with every innovation project or or effort that you're you're undergoing, you just have to strike the right balance of having the right people. And that becomes, you know, a bit of a challenge. And that's what makes innovation exciting as well as sometimes very difficult to achieve. And that is what inspired you to pull together, and the little pun there, uh, your organization, right, inspired. Uh, and, and so it's great that we have people like you that kind of help connect the experts to the innovation projects. I think that that's really tremendously important. So, wow, what a great conversation, Shelly. This has been fascinating. I know there are people listening in right now that want to know a little bit more about you and maybe maybe connect with you online. What are some ways that they can actually do that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, certainly they can go to our website, which is um, www.getenlightened, enlightened is spelled with an I.com. Also, you know, I'm on Twitter at, at Shelly Pavone. We have our, our LinkedIn for Enlightened, as well as my own personal LinkedIn. So I would really encourage people to, to reach out. I'm really passionate about healthcare innovation. I love to talk about ways that we can advance healthcare innovation and disrupt responsibly. And obviously, you know, Enlightened seeks to solve some of those problems with the, the disconnect and the knowledge gap between those that are in the healthcare system and, and those that are innovating. But, you know, aside from that, I think I love to engage with the community. So people should reach out. We will definitely put all the links in the show notes and uh, strongly encourage those listening in to click through and connect and, and actually, you know, learn from, from you and your experience. So Shelly, thank you so much for your time today. This has been really a fascinating conversation and certainly want to have you back on in the future to talk more about innovation because it's a critical, important piece of our industry. Thank you so much, Chris, for having me. Uh, Really appreciate it. It's been great.
All right, special thanks to uh, Shelly for coming on the show. Really interesting uh, work that uh, they're doing. It was fun to have uh, her come on the show as we talk about innovation today and appreciate her time. Before we get to recommendations, a couple of upcoming conferences. You can mark your calendars for September 14 through the 16, Navigating a New Reality. It's a uh, healthcare leaders confront the future and it is part of the AHA Center for Health Innovation, speaking of, in Shishmed. Uh, a little bit of a different conference than what you think of when you think of Shishmed. The Shishmed Connections uh, is actually in October, October 26 through 28. So they've got a couple of them coming up. Again, navigating a new reality. So Shishmed and AHA Center for Health Innovation, bringing together leaders and executives from across the country. Um, and it's going to be a three-day event. It's going to be cool. So virtual, certainly. And uh, we'll have uh, links in the show notes, but you can also uh, check it out in the weekly email. Then you've got uh, a conference coming up in October as well. That's right. The SMASH conference. It's a funny acronym, SMASH. The Senior Care Premier Sales and Marketing Summit. That's, uh, I guess they abbreviated that Sales and Marketing Summit to SMASH. It's really focusing on the post-acute space. On October 19th through the 23rd, I will be doing a two-hour workshop about building a B2B2C strategy for post-acute care organizations. And then right after that is HCIC, right? Yeah, HCIC. And uh, again, you can find out more about all these conferences and links and all that kind of good stuff. If you uh, navigate over the website, touchpoint.health, you will see uh, the TPS report, which you can sign up for. So weekly email comes out uh, every Monday. That's not a holiday, I should say. It has about five or six stories aggregated from around the industry by the show host. So it's a quick read, uh, but we'll also have some links to some of these things as well. Loved if you signed up for that. So let's move over to recommendations. What do you, what do you have today? Well, Reed, we're recording this, like you said, on Labor Day, so the, the Monday of Labor Day weekend. And so you and I are laboring today, just duly note that. Over the weekend, uh, my wife and I, we got out to do a really nice long bike ride. It's beautiful weather up here in the in Minnesota, so kind of cool, almost fall-like weather here. We're probably the only one place in the country that's not having abnormal weather right now. Anyway, after this nice long bike ride, we went to a small town in the middle of central Minnesota. And visited a brewery that was built inside of a church. Oh, interesting. We got some local brews and we sat by the river outside and enjoyed a nice cool beverage. And so that's going to be my recommendation. It's not very specific. Not This brewery, though, you can go to it. It's called Chapel Brewery. If you're ever in Minnesota, Dundas, Minnesota, go visit it. But my recommendation is on a weekend or a long activity, if you do some exercise or whatever, make sure you spend some time, enjoy a, a nice cool beverage, I would recommend from a local microbrewery in your area. That is if you drink. And if you don't drink, maybe get us some kombucha or some soda or whatever it might be. But just enjoy that. That's my recommendation. There you go. It's always nice to get on a nice bike ride as well. So that's... uh, (laughs) Notice how I didn't recommend that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exercising. I am recommending a deck of blank playing cards. Ooh. So you can obviously buy these off Amazon and people use them. I mean, it's a deck of cards, right? And they're blank on both sides and people use them. Like we, we made, you know, the multiplication facts, you know, for like my middle daughter, I had some of them, for example, right? So you just write on one side and they answer on the other side. So that's pretty straightforward. But this is what I use to take notes now. And so I just keep a stack of them on my desk and on calls and things like that. I write stuff down. I throw them away, 
once they're full or not useful anymore. Really? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, once they're full or I've marked things off the list or whatever, I can throw them away. But they're just kind of a neat size and uh, I've enjoyed, you know, these little blank cards. So lots of uses for them. Yeah, I think you should keep them, Reed. And then the next time we see each other, we could do a little game of, of five card digital marketing or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I got online reputation management. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like match, you know, or whatever. Like, yeah, exactly. Turn them over and yeah, or like go fish. Give me all your binary fountains, you know, that kind of thing. So uh, that's awesome, though. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Well, thanks, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for uh, listening. We certainly appreciate the support. And if there's a topic you'd like to see us cover, somebody you'd like to see us interview, we'd love to hear from you. I hope everybody's having a great uh, start to September. We love the uh, support that we get. Touchpoint.health is the website. For Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.